0: Welcome to Women of the Military podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Huffman, and here is another bonus episode for the summer. And this week we are highlighting author Aaron Miller, who wrote the book Final Flight Final Fight. For the summer, I'm going back and picking up past episodes and rebroadcasting them and sharing why I picked these episodes. And so this week, we're doing Erin Miller's interview. And Erin Miller is not a veteran, but she wrote a book about her grandmother, Elaine Harmon, who was a woman Air Force Service pilot commonly known as WASP. And in the book, she categorizes their experience fighting to get her interned at Arlington. But she also shares some of the history of, of what the WASP experienced during World War II. And I also interviewed in episode 233, Dr. Catherine Landek, and she wrote The Women with Silver Wings, which goes into even more detail about the history of the wasp and how it was created and the leaders. And it follows primarily three stories of women who represented the wasp. And I really thought that book was fascinating. And I really loved reading Aaron's book because I learned so much about a group of women that I didn't know anything about and along with learning a lot about Congress and what it takes to lobby for and to get a law in place. And so I've mentioned Erin's book a multiple times during the podcast interviews that I've done and so I thought I would love to share her story again, highlight some of the things that she's doing. She recently received her private pilot's license and I follow her on social media and it's been really fun to see how she has changed and worked to extend the legacy of what the WASP did. I'd also be remiss not to mention that she has since our interview published a children's book called What My Grandma Did and it's all about what her grandma did as a women air force service pilot. I have a copy of it and I love it and I think that it's a great book. So I'll link to both of her books in the show notes so that you can check them out. But now that you know why I picked this episode, we can start the interview. Before we get started with this week's interview, I want to remind you that you have the opportunity to listen to Women of the Military podcast now on Reese Across America Radio twice a week. That's Fridays at 7 p.m. Eastern and Saturdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. And you can listen on iHeartRadio, Radio, the TuneIn app, or Odyssey. And now with that out of the way, let's get started with this week's interview. Thanks for being our guest today. I'm excited to talk to you. I recently finished Final Fight, Final Flight. As I was reading it, I got more and more excited about this interview. So welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me on. So can you tell us a little bit
1: about the history of the WASP? So the Women Air Force Service Pilots which the acronym is the WASP, were formed during World War II as a civilian component of women pilots in order to help alleviate the problem that we did not have enough pilots to go overseas for combat missions. So there were originally two groups of pilots that were women. One was organized by Nancy Love, and the other one was organized by Jackie Cochran. And these were two very well-known aviators at the time. And Nancy Love's group was the Women's Auxiliary Ferrying Service, which used experienced female pilots to ferry airplanes. And Jackie Cochran had a group called the Women's Flying Training Detachment, which was formed to train women. Eventually, these two groups merged in August of 1943 and became the Women Air Force Service Pilots and then continued having training classes. Um, And they were disbanded in December 1944. They flew more than 60 million miles domestically. A lot of people think they flew overseas, but that is not true. They flew within the United States. They did all kinds of missions. Um, They were test pilots they were tow target pilots, ferrying pilots, uh, a lot of different jobs, training pilots, but they flew within the United States. They flew every every type of airplane that was uh, available at the time from training planes to the B29 bomber. Yes, yeah, so there were 1102 of these women total. And one of them was your grandmother. One of them was my grandmother, Elaine Harmon. There were 13 from the state of Maryland, which is where we are from. So One of 13 here. There were more than 25,000 applicants and roughly about 1,800 were accepted into the program. And as I mentioned, uh, 1,074 graduated and then 28 from the previous program uh, became part of the program. So there were 1,102 of these women. And my grandmother joined in April of 1944 and went to Western Texas, to Sweetwater, Texas, which is where they trained at that time. They originally had training in Houston, but the weather was not very conducive for flying there, so they moved the program up to Sweetwater. The field there in Sweetwater was called Avenger Field, and it was only women that were there in the barracks and training here for the U.S. Army, even though they were in a civilian capacity at the time. They flew Army airplanes and did all the training the same as the male pilot's. And, and to, to this day, it is still the only all-female military base that we've had in our country.
0: That's kind of crazy. I don't think I knew how many applicants there were and how few women were accepted. So that's kind of remarkable that your grandmother was accepted and got to do this.
1: Yes, it is. And uh, even she didn't really think she would get into the program because she didn't have very much flying experience You had to have a pilot's license in order to join this program. So my grandmother had already taken flying lessons and gotten her pilot's license during her senior year of college at the University of Maryland through the civilian pilot training program, which was offered by the United States government at different locations across the country during the late 1930s to encourage people to learn how to fly. So my grandmother had the minimum hours for that and uh, got her pilot's license. And then she didn't really fly again until she applied for this program in, uh, you know, like late 1943. So She didn't really think that she would qualify, but they let her in, and once she was in the program, she learned there were quite a few women that had learned to fly through the civilian pilot training program that were with her. So there was kind of a mixed bag of experience. There were some women with a lot of experience, you know, that came from farms or had been flying crop dusters or, you know, doing different things before. And, and then there were women like my grandma who just kind of met the minimum requirements. But it didn't really matter because they all had to learn how to fly military planes. So they were kind of all thrown in the same class
0: anyway. Yeah. So they didn't, they all started pretty much on the same level. Yeah. What did your grandmother do after the war ended? So uh, my grandmother
1: met my grandfather during college at the University of Maryland. My grandfather could not serve in the Army because he had a heart condition. So he was what they called at the time 4F, physically not able to join. But despite that, he had ended up working for a company called Jack and Heinz that dealt with airplane instruments. And a lot of those instruments were in the planes that my grandmother flew. And that company had somehow gotten a contract or something with the government overseas in the Philippines. So my grandfather actually got sent as a civilian with this company to go work in Asia during the war. So when the WASP were disbanded in December of 1944, my grandfather was still in Asia. So my grandmother went home to Baltimore which is where she grew up. And she kind of hung around there for a while and didn't really have anything to do. So she decided to go to California and visit a friend of hers. And eventually she ended up working as an air traffic controller at Oakland Airport in Oakland, California. I think she was there for about a year. And then eventually my grandfather came back from Asia and they moved back here to Maryland and eventually had four children. And my grandma raised the kids. And my grandfather passed away before I was born, so I never met him. So my grandma became a single mom and, you know, worked and raised kids. And she didn't really fly anymore. Yeah, that's what she did after the war. Were your grandparents already married before the war started? or? Yes, my that- grandparents got married in the summer of 1941. So about six months before Pearl Harbor happened. And then they just stayed connected via letters. and Yeah, so I actually have a few postcards that my grandfather sent to my grandmother while she was serving with the Women Air Force Service Pilots uh, from Asia.
0: That's really cool.
1: Yeah, so we have a few postcards. I I assume he also sent letters. I I don't see any of those, but he may have sent letters too. So yeah, kind of just letters, postcards. I am I guess they could call on the phone eventually. When she was working in Oakland, she, she lived in a house, so I guess they could talk on the phone, but I, I don't know.
0: Uh, what's one of your favorite memories with your grandmother?
1: When I think about my childhood and spending time with my grandmother, one of the things I think about the most is playing tennis with her. When I was younger, I, I played a lot of tennis. She loved tennis and... Uh, quite a few of her grandkids would play tennis with her. And that's something that we did together a lot. Um, we also did crossword puzzles together all the time. So I don't know if there's one specific memory. There's just kind of things that over the years I think of often, you know, that have to do with my grandmother and um, playing tennis is one of those things. <laughs> she had yeah. a tennis court in her backyard But she didn't really maintain it well, so we ended up playing tennis at parks down the street, which I always thought was funny. That is kind of
0: funny. Uh, What was one of the things that Elaine was most passionate about? So the things I remember her being most passionate about were tennis
1: and uh, the women Air Force Service pilots teaching young people, and I guess any age actually, but especially young people about the women Air Force Service pilots and their role during World War II and what she did and using it as an example, you know, to just go after your dreams and do what you want and Oh, at that time during the war, a lot of women didn't even drive cars, but my grandmother was out flying military airplanes for the US Army. So that's kind of an example. She, she used to go out and give lectures and talks, you know, go to visit schools and museums. And she was constantly going to events and things to represent the WASP and, and talk to people and just get the word out about what they had done. So that's something she was very passionate about.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. In your book Final Fight, Final Flight, you talk about women coming up to your grandmother to thank her for what she what her service meant and what it meant to them. Do you know how these types of events made her feel? I think she was very proud that women
1: were serving in these various capacities. The wasp were not allowed to fly combat missions and there were many women that had served during the war that were able to serve, but not in every capacity. So not in combat or not, you know, in certain job descriptions or whatever. So my grandmother was very honored that women would come up and thank her for blazing a trail or, you know, having done what she did. But she was also very proud and excited to see young women in positions today that they were not allowed to be in like being fighter pilots flying jets you know flying in combat overseas and you know Afghanistan and Iraq and wherever and and being able to do those type of roles and she she was kind of a little bit too out of it but I know she would have been excited to see women going through ranger school and you know being able to be in infantry roles and that kind of thing and I think she really did not think women should be held back from any of the available positions in in the services.
0: In the book, you talked about how they, like you you said, they were civilians. They weren't actually in the military. And in the book, you mentioned that it was gender discrimination and the vote barely failed. And that was why they weren't actually commissioned officers in the army. But then in the 1970s, uh, the WASP went to Capitol Hill to fight to get veteran status. What exactly happened then? So it's a little bit technical and a little bit
1: nerdy legal stuff but during the 1940s part of the reason that the program began in a civilian capacity is because the United States needed lots and lots of people to serve in the armed forces once you know Pearl Harbor happened and our country really got involved in the different theaters overseas and we needed a lot of people all at once to do a lot of different jobs they realized, you know, we can't completely exclude women. We need a lot of people. So all the different services were contemplating how to integrate women into different roles. And, and, you know, the Navy, the Marines, they all had women serving in some capacity. And all of these bills went through Congress separately to formally acknowledge that the women were either being commissioned as officers or formally being inducted into the service and somehow somehow. So there was a bill to make the WASP formally part of the army and they were pilots. So in theory, they would have become commissioned officers as pilots, but during this campaign and and during this time, the WASP were serving, they said, look, you just join, you know, we're going to keep you as civilians for now because they didn't, they didn't have time to wait for Congress to figure out what they wanted to do. They needed people to help. And they were like, look, just come help and we'll figure it out later. And so this whole time my grandmother actually discusses, I think in her diary or somewhere that I read that, you know, she kind of knew what was going on, but she was busy working and flying and training men. And so she wasn't really on the, you know, up and up with everything happening on Capitol Hill. So she just kind of did her job and the people in Capitol Hill were, were dealing with their bill and there was a big campaign by male pilots and and various stakeholders related to the services. They didn't want women to become formally part of the military as pilots. Part of it was gender discrimination. Part of it was concern that after the war, you know, they would have competition for civilian jobs as pilots. I mean, there are obviously a lot of different factors and reasons involved. It's not just one thing. So there were a variety of people who were shouting against the WASP becoming part of the military, saying they were just pretty girls and, and they didn't need them to become officers and they didn't want them and all this stuff. So the bill failed by 19 votes in the summer of 1944, and the program was eventually canceled. On December 20th, 1944, 38 of these women died during service in various training accidents or whatever. So they and the rest of the WASP did not receive any formal recognition for what they had done as part of the military. Um, Their families did not receive gold stars to be able to hang in the window. They didn't get flags on their casket, nothing. So they went home and like a lot of the World War II generation, they just moved on with their lives. You know, like my grandma, I told you she went home and then eventually started working in Oakland Airport as an air traffic controller and just went on with their lives. Uh, Some of the WASP really fought to stay in the aviation industry and some of them succeeded and, and spent many years and decades staying flying planes or leasing planes or owning aviation, uh, what do you call it, airplane dealerships, what have you. They, They did a lot of different things, but they really had to fight to stay in that industry. My grandma was not one of those people. So they moved on. They went home, like a lot of World War II people, and... In the 1970s, the Congress forced the United States Service Academy, so the Naval Academy, the Air Force Academy, et cetera, to integrate women into their programs eventually. And so people started talking about, you know, the Air Force was going to have the first Women pilots and all this stuff. And my grandma and her friends from the WASP thought, hey, we did that 35 years ago and nobody knows about us because we just went home and stopped talking about it like the Army asked us to do. So they went out to Capitol Hill again and got a bunch of people together. And my mom says she remembers my grandma typing on a typewriter at night and creating letters and trying to find, you know, her friends from the WASP to get them all together. And they went to Capitol Hill and talked to lawmakers. To try to get a bill passed to recognize them retroactively for their service during World War II. It took several years and multiple versions of the bill, but eventually in 1977, as part of the GI Reauthorization, GI Bill Reauthorization Act. Um, It was signed into law in 1977 by President Carter with uh, assistance from Senator Barry Goldwater. And this bill granted them retroactive veteran status, or I should say the ability to apply for veteran status to the Department of Defense. So this is where it gets a little bit tricky. Uh, The bill granted any group or person who felt like they had served in a capacity similar to the WASP during World War II So that is in a civilian capacity, but under military direction, the ability to apply for retroactive veteran status. So that's what the WASP did after the law was signed in 1977. They applied to the Department of Defense and were approved. And eventually my grandmother received a DD-214 in 1979. 35 years after she left service. The way the law was written, my grandmother's DD-214 has an asterisk that said this applies to laws administered by the Veterans Administration, which is the
0: previous iteration of the Department of Veterans Affairs today. So then when your grandmother passed away in 2015, you asked Arlington to have her buried because that was what she wished for and the Army said no. And I, you did a good job in the book in just now explaining that the wording made it so that the Army could say no, and you're a lawyer. So you were able to look into it and see. So what happened after Arlington said no? So the issue was my grandmother, three weeks before my grandmother passed away,
1: the Army had done a review of their regulations, and this memo was issued explaining that the law only applied to the Department of Veterans Affairs. So my grandmother could only be laid to rest at a VA cemetery, of which there are, I think 138 now uh, across the country. But Arlington is run by the Department of the Army. So basically they were saying she was a veteran in one part of the federal government, but not in another part of the federal government. So that is how we came up with this problem and figured out that in order to make the Army recognize her service, it would require an amendment to the law for. 1977, because of that language that I mentioned. Right.
0: And so, when you guys got the rejection from Arlington, what was your guys' thought process on what to do next?
1: So, at the time, I was living with my mother, and my mother was the executrix of my grandmother's estate. So, she was kind of in charge of dealing with the, the paperwork in Arlington and that type of stuff. So, when she applied, and we received this, you know, eventually this rejection uh, via phone, I, my first thought was, okay, well, we need to talk to our senator and tell them what's going on. And I went on the internet and looked up all this stuff that I just explained to you because I didn't know any of this. I just had a general overview of everything that had happened. So I went online and spent a lot of time figuring out the nuance in the law and, and why exactly they were Rejecting her. And I decided the army wasn't completely wrong. I mean, I didn't agree with them, but legally, what they were saying was not completely wrong. So that's what I told my mom. I said, We need to take all this paperwork and explain the law and send it to our senator and tell them that they need to do something and we need a law passed. And so that's what we did. We got all these papers together. My mom sent them over to our senator's office. And then we waited uh, f- a few months. And eventually, we got a letter back from our senator and the cemetery, uh, saying that they understand where we're coming from, but unfortunately, this is the rule, and they didn't really give us much sense that they were going to do anything about it, and that was about it. So what
0: did you guys decide to do after that?
1: So after that, after we received this letter, which was roughly six months after my grandmother had died, I started thinking about how to go about getting this changed because I wasn't just going to let it go. But on the other hand, I didn't want to just, you know, start screaming about it. I want to figure out, okay, how do I actually fix this problem? And I knew we needed a new law or we needed to make the army look so bad that they would just change their mind and change the regulation. But at the same time, I knew that if, if they changed the regulation, then they could just change it back in a year or two years or whatever. If we got a law passed, it would force them to change their regulation permanently. So, you know, ideally, a new law was what we needed. So I decided to basically start a publicity campaign against the Army. And we had a lot of different ideas for that. So I thought about doing a petition. And fortunately, uh, my sister was thinking the same thing. My cousin was thinking the same thing. Kind of my whole family was involved at this point. So we created a petition on change.org and then... I also created a um, Facebook page and a bunch of social media pages. And I started reaching out to news reporters and different social media groups that deal with veterans and just getting people's attention that, you know, we're already in this space. And we got a lot of uh, signatures and people were really mad about this. And it kind of started from an Instagram post that I had done, I think, or was a Facebook post. I don't remember. I just took a picture of my grandma's ashes and her wings and I said, you know, my grandma wants to be buried at Arlington. And despite going through all this in the 1970s, they say she's still not a veteran at Arlington. And People were really mad and making lots of comments and a lot of them were people I didn't know. So I was like, oh, well, a lot of people are mad about this. Maybe we can actually get enough support to get this done. So I kind of just became the manager of this big social media campaign and this publicity campaign and it kind of snowballed from there. And then one of the
0: ways that you guys got to get the law passed through Congress is that um, who came to help you in the House of Representatives to get the law in motion and to start making change?
1: So through this media campaign, I started talking to reporters and doing interviews, and eventually I did an interview with the Associated Press which of course goes out to news outlets around the world. And when that happened, obviously a lot of people, more people took notice. It went to millions of people saw this. And one of those people and groups of people was the staff of Arizona Representative Martha McSally, who herself is a an Air Force veteran who flew the A-10 Warthog. And she learned of it because of these news stories. And Uh, reached out and said that she was going to write legislation to fix this problem. And I didn't even know her at the time. And I'm from Maryland and she was in Arizona. But this problem affected women across the country. And there are several WASPs who were from Arizona. And she knew several of them and came forward to write this legislation. So The next day, I went down to Capitol Hill with my other sister and uh, my mother, and we we met with her in her office and thanked her for doing this. And from there, um, it became more of a lobbying campaign. I spent a lot of time on Capitol Hill talking to other members and senators and pushing the bill and, of course, doing more news interviews. And it just kind of Again, more snowballing, more talking to people, just constantly adding people into the fold, people supporting us, groups like the Air Force association, the ninety nines women in Aviation International, all these you know military groups, veterans groups, uh, military officers Association of America was one of that a bunch of them were just kind of you know supporting us and telling their members, you know, please call your members of Congress and tell them to support this legislation and uh, we had a bill introduced the next week as well in the Senate. So then we had two bills going through Congress, which I explain in the book is helpful. You know, it's good to know that both chambers are supporting the the issue. And we had a Democrat and a Republican on each bill, which is also good. It shows bipartisan support, you know, so it's it's good. To, you just constant momentum and just getting more people to learn about it. And it's nice to have a leader like Martha, who's who was very passionate about this issue from a personal you know, position. Also, you know, having someone like that in Congress who, who really takes the bill seriously and pushes it and and tries to get it passed. And, you know, there there are people in Congress who, who write bills and then never do anything about them. So, you know, it's good to have someone who really takes it in, incumbent upon themselves to actually make sure and, and support the bill and get it done.
0: Right. And one of the things that I learned the most from the book was how much work and how much effort and how much time it takes to make a bill into a law. Because reading the book, I was like, it's cut and dry simple. Like, just vote on it, but it took a long time for all the pieces to come into place. Can you talk a little bit about that? And I know you were working full time as a lawyer, so you were spending a lot of time working on weekends and taking vacation to make this happen.
1: Yes. So the interesting thing about this bill is in the grand scheme of things in Washington, it it went pretty quickly, but we had a lot of very good pieces of the puzzle and a big team of of people and everyone had their little role to play. And it was a a good, it's a good example of how to really get something done effectively and how things really should be working and they don't always work this way. So that's why part of the story I like telling the story is this is how things should work. People should be able to go to Congress and say, here's my problem and here's what needs to be done. And, you know, then you have an excited legislator who's like, sure, I will help you. And then you have news people who support you and the public's behind you and you have all these different stakeholders helping you. And like, ideally, that's how it should happen. And that's what happened for us. So that's what I like to explain. But yes, I was working full time at the job I had at the time time we were allowed to work on Saturdays and then take off time during the week so I would work on Saturdays quite often to be able to take a whole day off during the week to spend that day on Capitol Hill I took off a lot of vacation time and I I think I used up all my vacation time dealing with this The bill was introduced in the House on January 6th 2016 and it was signed into law by the president on May 20th so that I think it's 19 weeks they said So in D.C., that's pretty... Pretty fast. And there's a lot of issues that go into that. Like I said, you have to keep it on the minds of the people in Congress and make sure they know. You know, I would go into offices. I met with more than 150 offices on Capitol Hill between the House and the Senate, staffers and members and senators in person, and just say, look, here's this issue. Here's this bill. My grandma's ashes are sitting in my closet. We can't bury her because we need this law to get passed so the Army will recognize her service. And it, I think. I think it's pretty motivating when someone sits in your office and says I can't bury my grandma because I need this law passed. So, you know, and it was one of those issues dealing with veterans a lot of times that is generally supported on both sides of the aisle and, and a generally supported issue. And so it's a women's issue, it's a military issue. There's a lot of different facets that were involved in this issue. And I would often get up at four in the morning and go to work early and leave, you know, do like a half day and spend, you know, almost a whole day on Capitol Hill. After that, and then spend the rest of the night emailing people, talking to reporters, texting, messaging, whatever, until the middle of the night and then get up four or five hours later and do the same thing. So yes, it was very exhausting. But luckily, the meat of that part was, you know, only a few months. So it wasn't. In the grand scheme of things, it's very uh, short, but it was a very intense, and I was constantly anxious because Congress can be a little bit like you know they say like news reporters they're they're on one story, but if another story happens, they all turn their attention to something else, and so you kind of want to you have to keep your attention on your issue and constantly be doing news stories and making sure that they're paying attention and know that you still need their help and you know it's moving forward and and on top of that, Martha and the leaders in Congress need to vote on it. So just because you get co-sponsors on bills, I think we ended up with 191 co-sponsors in the House. and. I don't remember in the Senate we had several dozen. Just because you get co-sponsors, which means people are you know voicing their support for it, doesn't mean it will actually get voted on. A lot of bills get co-sponsors and then they never are brought to the floor for a vote. So that's why it is important to have a member like Martha or whomever you know talking to the leadership in the House or the Senate and and say, "Here's this bill. We have all this support. We need to come to the floor and have a vote." You know, because a lot and that's important too. And I had no control over that. So that's why it's important to have a good, you know, champion
0: on your bill who, who's pushing for votes. So when you finally got to the point where the votes happened, and it became a law, how did how did you feel? And how did your family feel? Well,
1: this entire time, I was super anxious and, and very stressed, because I felt like, If this didn't get done, you know, in this session of Congress, we'd have to do it all over again. And it just takes so much time and energy. And I was really hoping we wouldn't have to do that. So when the bill actually came to the floor for a vote and got voted on and moved through the Senate and got signed into law, it was like a big, a big sigh of relief. You know, like the day that happened, all of a sudden I went from being
0: busy 24 hours a day to have nothing to do. It was very weird. (laughs) yeah that is kind of weird but it makes sense because you're like trying to keep it in the forefront and working on it and then it's done so yeah it was it was very it was like going from 300 miles an
1: hour on a racetrack to like walking it was so weird (laughs) so what compelled you to write your story into a book so during this whole process quite a few people told me oh my gosh this would make such a great book or a great movie or whatever and I'm like Yeah, it would. But I had so much going on to get the bill passed at that time. I didn't really, you know, think about it. I would just say, oh, yeah, I agree with you. That's, you know, a great idea. And then, like I said, once I went from 300 miles an hour to walking, I suddenly had all this free time and thought, you know, maybe I could write a book. I have all these notes, all these news reports and piles of papers and all these things. And I'm a lawyer. I write all day long. So, you know, I could write. So I started writing a book and spent that whole summer before my grandma's funeral. Um, writing the first draft of the book. And as I was doing that, I realized it's a good way to keep the story alive. And my grandma's passion, as I mentioned earlier, was, you know, talking to people about her service and the Wasp and what they did during the war and You can't go everywhere. I can't go to every school in the country and every museum in the country and talk. But if I write a book, you know, it is a tool to teach people about both the history of the wasp, my grandma's story, and then also Congress. Like, how does legislation work? A lot of people are really interested in civics, and especially nowadays, like, we have all these activist movements and things and people are really interested in how does Congress actually work? What is it like to sit in an office with a senator and tell them what your problem is and explain how to get things done and what happens when the bill goes through Congress and what happens when it turns into a law. When the president signs it, what happens? So I use the book to teach all of those things. And like I said, it can't go everywhere. So the book is available, you know, wherever Amazon or Barnesandnoble.com, whatever, you know, you like, um you can order it and read it and share share it with people. You can get your library to buy it. it. It helps teach people about all of these things. And to me, it's just a tool and carrying on my grandma's tradition of sharing these this information.
0: Yeah, it's a great book. I really loved all the things that I learned and just the history. And I was really fascinated by all the steps to make a law in Congress because I didn't know it. And so it was really cool to hear that part. And I'll make sure to link to the book in the show notes so that if people want to order it, they can go and order it. And I highly recommend that you do. I want to end the interview with one last question. Normally, I ask people what they would tell women considering joining the military. But I was wondering, what do you think your grandmother would tell young women who are considering joining the military? I, I think that I actually heard her answer something like this
1: once. And she said something like, it's a great adventure and I I encourage everyone to do it who's interested. And so I, I would say that it's a great adventure, you know, look for your place, you know, look for something you're interested in, look for a specialty and see if you can join in a specialty that you're good at. And I was at a seminar, I don't know, earlier this year with um, several airmen and this one young airman, she said, you know, when she growing up with her dad, she was always helping her dad fix cars and stuff. But when she joined the Air Force, I, I can't remember, she wanted to do some type of random job, but, you know, they gave her the. ASVAB and whatever other testing. And they were like, no, you're going to be a mechanic. And she was like, well, okay, you know, I want to do whatever, but you know, you guys tell me to do this. And she's like, seriously, I'm so good at it. And I actually really like it. So, you know, there's a little bit of what you want to do and a little bit of letting them guide you into what what you're good at. And my grandma would be very supportive. And like I said, she's super proud of all the women who are serving and, and the different capacities in which they serve.
0: Thank you so much for sharing a piece of your story, a piece of your grandmother's story. And just for the book, I think everyone, I think everyone should read this book. It's really good. And it's just, there's so much history and If you're a woman veteran, you'll be so proud of the women who came before us that blazed the trail, and it's just—I just love it. (laughs) If you can't tell,
1: thank you. It really—it takes a lot of work to write and publish and get the book out there, and it really means a lot to me that people are enjoying it and finding some value in it.
0: Thank you.